This program is intended for informational and educational purposes only. All views and opinions expressed are the views and opinions of the individuals and sponsors presenting them, and not the LTB network. Enjoy the show. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another edition of Sovereign BTC, your guide to the practical side of everyday Bitcoin use. You can hear the podcast on the Let's Talk Bitcoin podcast network. Check it out at letstalkbitcoin.com or you can check out our website at sovereignbtc.com. In addition to bringing you this weekly podcast, we also offer media, marketing and consulting for the Bitcoin ecosystem. Again, that's sovereignbtc.com. Dot com. This is the ninth edition of the Sovereign BTC podcast. The title of this episode is The Taxman Cometh. And we're going to start the program off chatting about the IRS's recent tax ruling declaring Bitcoin to be property, not a currency. And we're going to talk about the implications that the ruling has on Bitcoin and your economic freedom. And then in order to help people gain a better understand on the fraudulent nature of the income tax and the IRS... We're going to play an interview that I did with Joseph Bannister a couple years ago. Joseph Bannister is a former IRS agent with the criminal division, and he actually played a role in busting down doors and gathering evidence to put people behind bars for harming no one, really. And he saw that it was wrong. He started looking into the code itself and saw some inconsistencies there as well. So we're going to play this in-depth interview I did with him that really gets down to the nitty-gritty of how fraudulent the IRS truly is. Uh, Then we're going to bring you the Bitcoin quote of the week. This one's from Bill Miller. He's a prominent value investor, and apparently he owns some Bitcoin, and he's quite bullish. So we're excited to bring you that. And finally, we'll bring you this week's featured interview. This time there's a little twist. It's actually an interview that someone did with me, Jack Spierko of The Survival Podcast, thesurvivalpodcast.com, interviewed me a couple days ago all about Bitcoin. He's got a huge audience, so it's a wonderful opportunity to get the word out about the true value of Bitcoin. We talk about Bitcoin, why it's useful for businesses, the ins and outs of Bitcoin, and we also get into the nitty-gritty of how Bitcoin can be used to help create a more free society, free the market and free the world, as they say. So let's go ahead and get down to it. The IRS issued a ruling, it looks like on March 25th, and they have a little note here on their website, irs.gov, and the title is IRS Virtual Currency Guidance. Virtual currency is treated as property for U.S. federal tax purposes. General rules for property transactions apply. They go on to have a few little bullet points on how this is going to affect Bitcoin users. Wages paid to employees using virtual currency are taxable to the employee, must be reported by an employer on a Form W-2, and are subject to federal income tax withholding and payroll taxes. They also say payments using virtual currency made to independent contractors and other service providers are taxable, and self-employment tax rules generally apply. And they also go on to say that you've got to fill out a Form 1099, of course, if you pay someone more than six or $800, I believe. Uh, The character of the gain or loss from the sale or exchange of virtual currency depends on whether the virtual currency is a capital asset in the hands of the taxpayer, and they say a payment made using virtual currency is subject to information reporting to the same extent as any other payment made in property. So I think there's not a huge surprise there. I think most people that were using Bitcoin and doing it on the books uh, expected that they would have to treat it similar to money in that when they're paying somebody, an employee with Bitcoin, they would use a W-2, or if they're playing a contractor with Bitcoin, they would use a 1099. They uh, then link to notice 2014-21 that goes in-depth 
Uh, the purpose, this notice describes how existing general tax principles apply to transactions using virtual currency. It just, it's just really upsetting. I gotta tell you, this IRS stuff. Being a liberty guy, I of course see any taxation as theft, and it's coercive in nature. If you disagree with that, you just have to do a thought experiment on what would happen if you chose not to pay the taxes, whether it's property tax, sales tax, or income tax. You don't just get off scotch-free. You start getting threatening letters, and these threats are backed up with violence, with a threat of violence. That's what coercion is. And if you ultimately choose not to comply with their requests, their demands, really, you end up being put in a cage. And men with firearms will come to your home, your business, and take you away and take your property. And if you put up any form of resistance, you could be killed. So this is serious business. For anyone not thinking taxation is theft, just ask those who would prefer not to pay it why they would pay it. Or examine what happens to those who choose not to pay it and they choose to stay consistent till the bitter end. In many instances, they're killed or they're locked away and all of their property is taken from them. So this document here, it goes over a bunch of different questions, 16 questions, and they actually get into the details of mining, which is interesting. They talk about how miners have to consider the bitcoins that they pull out of the the program to be income as well. And, you know, a lot of people think they're celebrating this because now there's going to be some consistency and now there's a little bit more of an understanding. There's less unknown surrounding Bitcoin. I think it's kind of going to be a pain in the butt because the implications that this have for users, if you receive Bitcoin at a certain price, and then you use it when Bitcoin's gone up 10 or 20, 30%. If you're really going to comply with the nitty gritty of what they're saying here, then you're going to have to keep track of the gains that you had every time you use it. And with Bitcoin as volatile as it is now, that's going to be a huge headache. What this really represents is the state wanting to get its grubby hands on every aspect of wealth transfer and wealth ownership that exists within the territorial geographic area known as the United States of America. It's the United States of America Incorporated, the federal government, doing what it can to leech off of the subjects that exist within this geographic space. And i got to tell you, folks, the income tax doesn't go to pay for highways. It barely even pays for national defense, if you're into that. Mostly, the income tax is going to service the national debt. And i got to tell you, it's not my debt. I never chose to take out that debt. Nobody did it on my behalf. It's not my children's debt either. They're not going to be indebted for future generations, as everyone says. This is not my debt. It's not our. There is no we in my lexicon when it comes to associating with what I see as a criminal band of thugs parading as government agents or government officials. So the debt that's been taken out was taken out by cronies, by U.S. senators, congressmen, by bureaucrats, by the president. It wasn't taken out by me. I didn't choose to do that. And in no way did the U.S. representatives or the senators represent me. None of them do. Closest to someone that actually represented my position was Ron Paul, and he didn't represent it 100%. Nobody represents my position 100% except for me. And so I never chose to take out this debt to to finance foreign wars of aggression. I didn't choose to take out debt in order to create an oppressive police state and a technological dictatorship here in the United States. I didn't choose to take out this debt in order to set up military juntas or prop up dictators in third world countries to exploit their country's natural resources in participation with the United Nations and the IMF. I didn't choose to do any of that, and personally, I don't want to have anything to do with that. So it's not my debt. But yet, the U.S. government insists on everyone, 
whether you like it or not, participating in the servicing of this debt and paying interest on this debt to the big fat cat bankers. It's a big fraud, folks, and I don't much appreciate it. But thankfully, thankfully, finally there's a currency, there's a medium of exchange that utilizes cryptography, and that's very shadowy, and that grants its users pseudo-anonymity. Or if you play your cards right, and if you really... If you really try hard, you can have you could be genuinely anonymous with mixing services and stuff like the dark wallet that's coming out. So there is hope. There is hope. I saw it coming. I've been monitoring this and being a liberty guy and anarchist. Uh, it was I thought Bitcoin was a wonderful opportunity to to see what it's like from the ground floor for the government to come in and to exploit a medium of exchange or the government to come in and try to issue edicts and rulings and get their grubby hands on it and engage in central planning and regulations. And I've seen what's happened to some businesses that have that have just stopped or that have uh, cautiously moved forward or that haven't moved forward at all because there's just so many unknowns. There's uncertainty, which is terrible for entrepreneurs. I've seen businesses have to completely change their business plan because the banks that they're working with are scared to death that the regulators are going to come crack down on them. And it's a shame. But it's been really interesting witnessing the genesis of a free market that's slowly but surely becoming less free, but at the same time, we have Cody Wilson types that are out there pushing dark wallet and, and all that good stuff. So I guess the point that I'm getting at is while it was to be expected and it should be no surprise that the U.S. government and nation states across the entire globe are trying to get their grubby little hands on Bitcoin, there's no surprise there. There's something that I take hope in. And that's the fact that Bitcoin, unlike other currencies or medium of exchanges or value transfer systems, is going to be much easier to go under the radar. And the state's going to try to crack down and try to control as much as they can, but in reality what they're doing is creating even bigger of a black market and encouraging even more people not to entirely fully report exactly what the state wants them to report. And I'm taking hope in that. I expect a large percentage of Bitcoin users are probably going to comply with Uncle Sam just as Uncle Sam wants them to and do all the turmoil and all the hard work that goes into filing and keeping track of all that stuff. But you know what? I think there's going to be a big chunk of people that don't. I think there's going to be a huge chunk of people that don't. And I think finally, for the first time in a long time, if not ever, especially since 1913, there is a mechanism that people can engage in uninvestigatable activities. That's something that Cody Wilson said in a speech we had on a Sovereign podcast a couple weeks ago. He said the beauty of Bitcoin is it's uninvestigatable. He then said, let a thousand silk roads bloom. But the point is, with Bitcoin, people have a choice at least. Because when it boils down to it, if you receive money on a cold storage wallet, to a blockchain address that isn't tied to your name in any way, what the heck is the state going to do? How are they going to know? you got to be thinking about that in the back of your mind. I haven't really heard this conversation take place in a whole lot of places and spaces openly and publicly since this ruling came out. But you got to know, folks, you have a choice. You have freedom. Now, of course, there's great risk involved, and it would probably take the NSA to really dig down and see what the heck's going on with some people that are covering their tracks. But when you when you think about it, you can encrypt, you can hide, you could stash, you could paper wallet, you could cold storage. Really, you could do what you want. And I'm excited that Bitcoin offers that promise, that potential. And I'm hoping that the state's going to see they can try, try, try. But you know what? 
you're just not going to get everyone's Bitcoin and you're not going to get a share off of everyone's Bitcoin because there's people out there that are going to thumb their nose at you. And you know what the state's going to realize? That association of individuals that parade as government officials and that claim to have legitimate authority over everyone that exists within the geographic area known as the United States of America, I think they're going to realize that you can't control Bitcoin. No. And you can't stop an idea whose time has come. There's a need for this tool right now. Governments all across the world are becoming increasingly oppressive. Economic controls are popping up and springing up everywhere. And we have it good here in the States. Sure, they tax you 20, 30, 40% upwards. Other governments have 65% tax. There's some third world countries, however, where women can't even open bank accounts. You know that? There's some third world countries where they're going to tax the heck out of you if you're going to try to send capital or value outside of the country. They want to keep it there greedily. And that's where the true value of Bitcoin lies. We have it good here in the first world, the United States of America, where we enjoy relative freedom. However, I think that's kind of a paradox because everyone thinks this is such a free country and we have relative economic freedom. But there's such a big tax machine on top of that economic freedom that it actually creates more of a tax base and more growth of the state. And in fact, we have probably the largest police state and prison state in the entire world here in the States. There's more prisoners here in the United States than there is in any other country. That goes for Russia and China as well. So just want to throw that little bit out there. But in other countries, it is empowering the people, and there are scores and scores and scores and scores of people that say, you know what, I know that my government doesn't want me to send money out of this country without first getting permission. And there's scores of women that are saying, you know what, I know that my government thinks I'm a second-class citizen and have no right to engage in economic transactions, but you know what, they're doing it anyway. And for me, that is beautiful, and that's what freedom is all about. Sure, there's a great risk, ladies and gentlemen. But here we have a tool, Bitcoin, that allows us to be relatively anonymous. It allows for relative freedom compared to other mediums of exchange. And I'm excited to see how this plays out. I think more and more people are realizing that the emperor wears no clothes. And the internet has a lot to do with that. And now Bitcoin is playing its role in educating people and helping them to understand that the state is arbitrary and they only exert control through fear and coercion. And I hope more and more people realize that that is wrong. So thanks, IRS, for helping people to see your true colors. Now, if you want to get a better understanding of what the IRS is all about, I'm going to play this interview. interview I did a few years ago as part of the Foundation for a Free Society, a 501c3 that I helped to found. And this organization uh, focuses on private property, free markets, uh, educating people about the philosophy of liberty. Sat down and did an interview with Joseph Bannister. He's a former IRS agent for the criminal division. And he started studying the IRS code and, and found some pretty big inaccuracies compared to what most people believe to be the truth. And he decided to stand up and speak out. And he lost his job as a result of it. He quit, really. And this interview covers a few different things. It covers uh, three different uh, things that we can explore as to why, in fact... The IRS is a total fraud. And the first thing that we explore is the fact that most Americans don't actually earn income. You'll hear about it in the speech. The second thing we explore is that most Americans are not, in fact, liable. There's no liability clause to actually pay the income tax. And third, and most interestingly, a lot of people aren't aware that the 16th Amendment, the Income Tax Amendment, it was never properly, constitutionally, or lawfully ratified back in the early 1910s. We're going to get a little history lesson from someone named Bill Benson, 
And the work that he did was called The Law That Never Was. We also talk about voluntary compliance. And we have a frank discussion in this interview about what it means to stand up because there's a fallacy out there. It's called the ought is fallacy. And that holds that just because that's the way things ought to be, even according to the law, just because you don't actually earn income, just because there's actually no liability, just because the income tax was never really properly ratified, just because that's the way things ought to be according to the law doesn't mean that's the way things are. And if you have any experience dealing with the criminal injustice system, you would know that the courts don't really care about the law. In most part, they care about maintaining the status quo, and that's a status quo of control, of a small group of people exerting control and authority over a larger group of people, which is what statism essentially is. So I just want to throw this message of caution out there. Should you choose to exercise your right to self-ownership, your right to control the fruits of your labor, your right to voluntarily exchange with anyone on this planet that you choose to do so for mutual benefit, should you choose to take that leap, do so with caution. Because even though the law will be on your side, even though you are engaging in an ethical activity, the state will still seek to crush you. Which is one of the reasons why, if you've noticed in the past few podcasts, we've had the opportunity to talk about freedom cells or creating institutions that can help insulate and protect us from external aggression, whether it's private or public criminals alike. We talk about that a little bit later in the program with our Jack Spearco interview. We bring that idea back, the idea of a freedom cell. So that's why I'm always interested in exploring how we can create institutions, networks, communities that will allow people to opt out and not participate in their own oppression or not fund foreign wars of aggression. And this IRS is just one big part of that. So now that Bitcoin is considered property and the IRS has issued a ruling, an edict commanding obedience, I wanted to go ahead and revisit this interview and help uh, educate some folks on the true nature of the IRS. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, here's an interview. It's about 16 minutes long that I did with ex-IRS agent Joseph Bannister. It's all about the fraudulent income tax. My name is Joseph Bannister, and I'm a former IRS Criminal Investigation Division Special Agent. I worked at the IRS from 1993 through 1999, and I resigned from the IRS because I uh, researched some issues about the legitimacy, about the way the income tax laws are enforced and administered, and uh, my supervisors at the IRS refused to address any of my concerns and questions and encouraged me to resign. And so I, I went ahead and resigned in February of 1999. How many people have, have any of us met who say, I love the income tax? You know, most Americans, if not all of them, don't like it. So why do we have it? Did the American people want it in the first place? No. Do they want it to continue? No. And yet any time there's a movement, a coalescence of people trying to uh, make something different happen, well, the IRS just sits up there like a, you know, like a shooting gallery and just picks off anybody that has a contrary opinion. So that really disgusted me. And, and as far as apprehension, uh, certainly when you see the kind of dirty tricks, shall we say, or deceit that's going on, it, may, it gave me a real apprehensive feeling about, well, you know, who am I working for? Who, who, what is this agency? What is it really about? And is there any uh, integrity here? Because I consider myself a man of integrity. I mean, at least I try very hard to be honorable. And yet, am I going to be able to maintain any honor or integrity with this agency? Uh, but I also wanted to give them the benefit of the doubt, the IRS, 
uh, the government, because even to this day, I don't think of myself as anti-government or anti-tax. I come from a family of government servants. Uh, I have not abandoned the idea that we need some level of government. Um, but the level we have, uh, basically, it's like the um, you know the inmates running the asylum kind of thing. Our government is out of control. It's not answerable to the people. And uh, the one agency for sure that is unaccountable to the people is, is the IRS. When a person works for a living, they go out to work for the day, and they work eight hours, and they get paid for eight hours, well, they're engaging in an activity that is constitutionally protected. You have a constitutionally protected right to the fruits of your own labor. And, in fact, the Supreme Court has ruled over and over again that the definition of income, I-N-C-O-M-E, income on a legal and constitutional basis, is a gain or a profit. And when you go out and trade your eight hours of work for eight hours of pay, you've not realized any kind of gain or profit. The Supreme Court has defined what income is and what we do each day to work, to, to survive, to make a living, uh, we do not earn income in that sense. And so therefore, for the IRS to tell us that we are, the IRS is deceiving us and, and, and lying to us and saying that they're going to tax something that is not taxable. The IRS will um, assert in a great deal of its literature that you have to be liable for a tax in order to be required to pay it. Uh, but when you go to the Internal Revenue Code and actually look for the section or sections that make you liable, uh, it's not there. There are sections that make people liable to pay a tax on distilled liquor, on cigarette rolling papers, on you know airline tickets, on, on all kinds of things. It's very clearly laid out who's liable to pay the tax. But for the income tax, uh, the only people or groups that are made liable to pay the income tax are withholding agents who are withholding uh, from payments to non-resident aliens or foreign corporations. So here we have the IRS saying that liability is an important issue. Liability is something that each of us needs to determine. And yet when you go to the Internal Revenue Code to find where you might become liable, uh, it's only a very limited set of circumstances that don't apply to most Americans. Most Americans don't deal with non-resident aliens or foreign corporations. Most Americans aren't withholding agents. And those are, that's the only place where liability is even brought up with regard to income tax. So Bill Benson was the author of a book called The Law That Never Was. Uh, he actually co-authored the book with a man named Red Beckman. And the law that never was basically uh, revisited the ratification process of the 16th Amendment. And so what Bill did is he went to each and every one of the uh, 48, at the time it was 48 contiguous United States, you know, prior to Hawaii and Alaska. And he traveled by small airplane or driving to each and every one of those 48 contiguous United States. And he went to the state archives for each state and looked at their records and archives as to what they did in the ratification process. And during that process, he came up time and time again 
with uh, basically a, a lack of a ratification by the state, an outright rejection. Uh, for example, Kentucky. When Bill went to Kentucky and their state archives, he found Senate documents that indicated that the Kentucky Senate actually voted uh, 22 to 9 to reject the 16th Amendment. And yet, the, fed, the feds, the federal government, uh, included Kentucky as one of the ratifying states. Uh, so that happened over and over again. I mean, Kentucky was the most egregious, I would say. But state after state, California, Missouri, uh, you know, <clears throat> Illinois, all these different states had their own story for how they either outright didn't ratify it or how their own procedures uh, basically failed to ratify it according to the, the constitutional standards. You know, I was told prior to meeting Bill that, oh, this stuff is a bunch of BS and there's no evidence to prove it. And uh, after interacting with Bill, I mean, he had nothing but documentation. It was actually, had still the ribbons on the archived copies from the states. So this wasn't just some guy with a photocopy machine who decided to create a bunch of BS to try to, to uh, fool people. Uh, he had actual solid evidence of a lack of ratification or at a minimum fraudulent ratification of the 16th Amendment. Uh, the IRS, uh, believe it or not, the IRS uses the term voluntary compliance uh, quite frequently in its literature. Um, and then people, uh, citizens over the years, over the decades, who have looked very closely at what the IRS does, has encountered have encountered these pieces of literature, these statements referring to voluntary compliance. And I think it's a, it's, it's a common human reaction that you look at an agency that claims that you know, you're required to pay this tax, and yet they use the word voluntary or voluntary compliance over and over and over again in their own literature. Uh, in fact, the commissioner of the IRS, a number of times, uh, certainly in the 90s, 1990s, uh, actually said so in their message, their annual message to the public, that, you know, thank you for voluntarily complying with the income tax laws. And I think that actually they used the term voluntary compliance to try to get around some real difficult issues that they have to wrestle with. Like, you know, do we really have the authority to tax someone's labor? Do we really have the authority to make someone file a tax return if they're not liable for the tax in the first place? And so it's almost like a, a couching or sidestepping to just say, well, thank you for voluntarily complying, because if everybody's volunteering, we don't have to, you know, be accused of, of making anybody do anything. But obviously that's not the case with the IRS. Um, the biggest impediment, or largest impediment, I would say, to the, a person being able to simply assert the truth or assert what they read in the law is that the arenas that you are taken to to assert those arguments are, are very tightly controlled. So, for example, if you try to take an argument like, well, I don't have any income when I go to work and trade my work for, for money. Uh, if you tried to make that argument in a tax court, in a U.S. tax court, a civil proceeding, uh, they would fine you, the government, the IRS, would fine you $25,000 uh, 
for simply trying to make that argument. And so if you're fighting over $5,000 and you want to argue, but they're going to charge you another $25,000, it kind of puts it into perspective of uh, you know, what freedom you have to truly assert your beliefs and your position, even if it comes from a Supreme Court case. They'll still fine you $25,000 even for bringing it up. In um, a criminal case where someone's been accused of not uh, willfully not filing a tax return or evading tax, again, they may want the the defendant may want to bring up uh, a reason, which actually in almost all criminal tax cases, your reasoning is actually critical to determining whether you've committed a crime or not, because if you believe that you actually we're doing the right thing, and the jury believes you believed it, then they're supposed to acquit you. But what the government, the prosecution will do is, uh, is ridicule you and make it sound like, oh, well, how, you know, how could you possibly believe these things? Never mind that, you know, your position is based on a Supreme Court case <laughs> or something like that. Um, so they'll use ridicule, um, they'll use their own literature and say, well, we, the IRS, have already dispensed with that argument through this pamphlet. But you looked at the Supreme Court case and saw that the Supreme Court case was never overturned. So wouldn't the Supreme Court case trump an IRS pamphlet? Well, in your mind, and possibly in the law's mind, yes, but in the minds of a jury who's not familiar with the issues, you know, they may think, well, the IRS gave them a pamphlet, that should be enough. Um, another thing is that federal judges in criminal tax trials will often uh, not allow certain arguments or evidence to be even made. Uh, they'll just refuse uh, to allow it to be heard by the jury. And lastly, uh, another terrible uh, development is that a judge will tell the jury, regardless of what the defendant told you, I'm telling you, the law requires you to file tax returns in all, you know, in all cases. The law requires you to pay the income tax. And I'm the judge, and I'm telling you what the law requires. So it's a very tightly controlled arena, and that's sometimes where people are taken. Thankfully, the IRS doesn't have the resources to take everybody there. But it's basically like a little scourging area where they can, you know, whip you whip you bloody and you really have no recourse and uh, very little help. Uh, not that it's non-existent. I mean, I've been to those arenas and actually uh, been blessed with uh, you know, some reasonably good results, but they, it is rare just because uh, they hold all the cards and they don't want you to win, and so you really have to be well prepared ahead of time to uh, get through that gauntlet, that uh, minefield and get to the other side without your legs getting blown off. Uh, I think there's a tremendous value in, in uh, fighting this problem, fighting the deceit of the IRS, but uh, I encourage people to uh, do as much educating of themselves and fact-finding without uh, trumpeting what they're doing. Uh, because especially in this day and age with all of the government surveillance that's going on, the government relies on people uh, trumpeting their beliefs so that then the government can then turn 
the focus and the, the uh, surveillance and scrutiny on that person. Uh, at some point, people may have to go overt, shall we say, but I encourage people to stay covert in terms of their beliefs and their educating of themselves and their research as long as possible because it has a twofold benefit. Uh, it leaves, there's no, there's no worry because at least in this day and age until Big Brother uh, gets a camera into our, our homes, uh, we still have an opportunity to fill our minds with information relatively anonymously. That's changing rapidly, but relatively anonymously we can fill our minds with with uh, information. Um, secondly, it also prevents the government from getting uh, what they would call a hard target, or at least what a law enforcement person would call a hard target. Can't really focus on who it is that's getting this information or how it's being spread. Um, so the more, um, as I call it, stealth activism you can do, uh, the more stealth education and learning that you can do, the better off you'll be because uh, you know, I, I don't like to think about the government as our enemy, but in its current posture, where it is disobeying the law and the Constitution, uh, you have to at least treat them like they are the enemy. And, uh, you know, be kind, be patient, be calm, uh, don't overreact if you encounter government people, but you don't need to let them know what you're thinking either. So uh, I, don't, you know, I don't think it's futile at all to... Uh, to educate yourself about what the IRS does. Uh, in some cases, you may have to assert yourself. Um, but wait as long as you can, educate yourself as much as you can before that day so that you'll be the most prepared you can be. Well, that was some serious information. I hope you don't take it lightly. And I've done a lot of research and verified a lot of the claims that Joe Bannister makes. Uh, a lot of it's difficult to verify because the income tax code is completely insane. But I just want to, again, reiterate that word of caution. Should you choose to opt out and not participate in those institutions that you find wrong, it's a risk. It's a huge risk. So just be aware. But having said that, I think it's important that people choose of their own accord how they live their lives and what they contribute their wealth to, their value to. It's crazy times we're living in, ladies and gentlemen. But Bitcoin has the opportunity to not only free the market, but also free the world. So we'll leave it with that. Switching gears, we're going to move on to our Bitcoin quote of the week. It's kind of a little interview. It's not necessarily a quote, but there's some awesome quotes in there. This is Bill Miller. He's a former chairman and chief investment officer of Leg Mason Capital Management. And this is one of the most successful mutual funds that's ever existed. They call it a value trust. This guy, Bill Miller, uh, took charge and led the way. And they say he beat the S&P 500 index for 15 years in a row from 1991 through 2005. He consistently produced market-beating returns, and that's something that's very unlikely, never happens. This is a smart guy, and he's worth millions if not billions, and he's made millions and millions and millions of dollars for lots of people. So his opinion is very valuable, and I really appreciate it when these big, strong investors, people that are highly respected, come out strong for Bitcoin. And a lot of them own Bitcoin too. They probably own a hefty little bit of Bitcoin. But we're going to go ahead and play a, a little bit. It was an interview on CNBC that was done with Bill Miller. It's about two minutes. He talks all about Bitcoin and he makes some really awesome points that, again, leave me very hopeful for the prospects of Bitcoin increasing in value and becoming adopted by the mainstream. Here's this week's Bitcoin quote of the week. Really interesting um, uh, 
technological uh, experiment, an intellectual experiment. And I think with Bitcoin, what you have now is, and I started buying it personally after the Mt. Gox thing. I, when that didn't destroy the, in essence, the underlying psychology of it, it looked to me like it probably was, had a decent base around $500 per coin. But the most interesting thing about Bitcoin is it could be a zero. It's, it's like a venture investment. They, many of them don't work out. But the thing about Bitcoin, which is so interesting, is the addressable market here is as big an addressable market as there has ever been in the history of the world. So gold alone has an $8 trillion market value. Bitcoin has about a $7 billion market value. If it's only 10% successful as gold, it's 100 times your money. Yeah, but there are some who say it should be zero. And, and look at what China's doing today, even. It's trying to, to tamp down further on anything that has to do with Bitcoin as money. Uh, well, yeah, anything, anything that undermines, under, undermines the ability of a, of a sovereign to control its finances <laughs> is something that's going to be controversial. Fair point, fair point. No, but uh, from China's point of view as well, they have a different interest, which is ultimately capital flight. So I can understand why they might be especially sensitive to something like Bitcoin. But what about if U.S. regulators take a second look at it and decide, look, they've already said it's property, not currency. Does that worry you? No, gold, gold is property, too, not currency. So, I mean, it doesn't. The, the th a lot of what people say about Bitcoin with respect to the fact that if, if you look at it, whether it be a, a unit of account, a, you know, a store value, a medium of exchange, it's actually all of those things. But people, people complain about it being uh, a store of value because they say, well, look at how volatile it is, you know, because and, and, it was went up 56 times last year, and then, then it uh, went to 1,200. Now it's, now it's 500. I mean, my view is, okay, gold has been the, been the gold standard, right, for 5,000 years. It was $35 an ounce. Then it was $800 an ounce. Then it was $200 an ounce. Then it was $2,000 an ounce. Now it's $1,200 an ounce. $1, it's, it's pretty volatile. Look, at the, look at, the, at the mark after World War I. It disappeared in value. Look at the Argentine currency in the last 12 months. Look at the Brazilian currency. So all of these things that are money move around a lot. I'm not, again, I'm, the thing about Bitcoin that I find amusing is there are people that hate it, and then there are people that are in love with it, and ideolo ideological on both sides. I I'm trying to be about down the middle of the road on this thing. I don't have a strong view. I'm just observing it. Well, but owning it as well. Owning a small part of it. A yes. small part of yes. it. Yes. I want to take a sec to thank some of our sponsors that make this show possible. If you appreciate the message we're delivering here on Sovereign BTC, I encourage you to check out these sponsors and uh, shop with them. The first one is Bitmain. Check out bitmaintech.com. This is one of the most reputable mining hardware manufacturers out there. They're the ones that brought you the Antminer S1, 180 giga hash, 360 watts. Well, now they're bringing you the Antminer S2. It's a one tera hash per second machine. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. And it delivers one watt per giga hash, which is pretty dang efficient and will definitely help you pull a lot of Bitcoin out. But be sure you report that Bitcoin or the IRS is going to get you. I'll leave that up to your own devices and your own choice. But nonetheless, I digress. There's still opportunity to get in on the second batch of Antminer S2s. They'll be shipped out on April 10th, and they're going for a price of $3,600. That's $3,600, which I think is a great value for this particular piece of machinery. A lot of people are still getting in on the pre-orders. I think there's value in getting on the pre-orders, especially if you are one of the first ones to get a new piece of technology. But a lot of these other machines, they've been around for a while, and they're already flooding out on the market. But here you have the opportunity to get a one terahash machine and get it relatively quick. I don't know what the third batch of these machines is going to do. They might just have them immediately available, like the Antminer S1s are available. But for now, you order one today, and it ships out after April 10th. And Bitmain has a wonderful reputation of not screwing around. They don't do any pre-orders. They deliver on time, and sometimes they deliver 
before. They deliver before what they promise. So I think that's pretty valuable. Check out bitmaintech.com. I've personally met Yoshi, who's one of the main guys involved in this operation. And he's a stand-up gentleman. I think he's the brains behind the, the miners, actually. We have a Bitmain uh, S1 mining at Brave New Books. And it's doing pretty well. And I'm really excited about that piece of machinery. So check out bitmaintech.com. The Antminer S2s are currently available. That's one terahash per second. And it's one gigahash equal to one watt. So that's one terahash and 1,000 watts. Not too shabby. I'd also like to thank Central Texas Gunworks. You can get firearms, self-defense training, CHL courses, and you can get them all in Bitcoin. And if you're in Austin, Texas, you can swing by and purchase and or sell Bitcoin at the Bitcoin ATM, one of the few in the city, one of the few in the country. And that's located at 321 West Ben White Boulevard, Suite 203, Austin, Texas, 78704, deep in the heart of South Austin. When you're there, you can visit with Michael Cargill. He's one heck of a Bitcoin proponent and liberty advocate. Really appreciate the work that he's doing. And every time he gets out in front of the media, he's making a big splash. So check out centraltexasgunworks.com. Again, you could purchase firearms online with Bitcoin. Man, can't beat that. And now for our final act, we're going to bring you this week's featured interview. But this one's with a twist. It's actually an interview that Jack Spearco of the Survival Podcast did with myself. So I wanted to share a portion of this interview. You can find the full interview at SovereignBTC.com. We're just going to play probably about half of it. And it picks up with uh, Jack asking me about how Bitcoin plays a role in the prospects for creating a free society. We get into all sorts of good stuff, talk about the IRS, talk about how Bitcoin can be uninvestigatable. We talk about how Bitcoin could be used to create alternative institutions, to create alternative governments, really, voluntary cooperative governments. And we talk about Bitcoin 2.0. We talk about all sorts of good stuff, how Bitcoin could be used for local merchants. So I hope you appreciate this interview. It was done on the Survival Podcast. This got heard by tens of thousands of people, so it was a great opportunity to get the word out about Bitcoin. Really appreciate what Jack Spearco is doing. He's a wonderful advocate and proponent for liberty. And he also encourages people to take responsibility for their lives and understand that crap could hit the fan relatively soon. It's important to be prepared. But even if crap doesn't hit the fan, I think, and he thinks, that this whole self-sufficient lifestyle is one that many people can benefit from, even if things stay the same. So without further ado, folks, here's an interview Jack Spearco did with myself all about Bitcoin, and it was on the Survival Podcast this week. Hope you like it. But yeah, to answer your question, that's the 100 million Bitcoin question. Uh, my, my, you know, For the past five, six years, I've been an anarchist, and I've tried to put anarchism into practice. And I've abandoned political, I've gone post-political, and I've focused my time on building alternative institutions that can grow and rival the state. And we could show people that there's other ways to do things that are not dependent on coercion, hierarchy, control, fear, slavery, rather dependent on voluntary cooperation and mutual benefit and peaceful exchange. And I think Bitcoin is so wonderful, and this is originally why I was so turned on by Bitcoin, because it's anarchism in action. Everyone that participates in the Bitcoin economy is doing so of their own accord. They're not being coerced or forced to participate in this economy. And I think we could show people that, look, we can do it with money, which is one of the big things. Yeah, like defense, justice, and money, I think, are the big three things that people, even even libertarians, say, well, we need a small government in order to to make sure our borders are secure, in order to make sure that people uh, they have their day in court. 
And again, in order to regulate the money and make sure we have these weights and measures that which was even in the Constitution, which I think is is an overreach for a government to do in the first place. It's antithetical to the free market. But with Bitcoin, we can do all of those things, essentially, and we don't have to rely on the central government. Now, with it and of course, with freedom comes immense personal responsibility. And that's one thing that people need to be aware of using Bitcoin. If you're not doing it properly and you let something slip up, you can have your Bitcoin wallet hacked and stuff taken uh, also, there's no chargebacks with Bitcoin. So once you send that Bitcoin, there's no way to call up Visa and say, you know, this was fraud. They're not and they're not doing their end of the deal. There's no way to have a PayPal reverse the transaction, which is a benefit on the on the retail or the business, the merchant side. But you got to have personal responsibility, and that comes with any time you're dealing with freedom, any time you're dealing with an individual taking things into their own hands. You got to pay attention to that personal responsibility, but. I think it's just the beginning. Now, if you really want to talk about a free society and related to Bitcoin, there's this whole idea called Bitcoin 2.0, which is utilizing the Bitcoin blockchain. Again, that's the public ledger that's kept. Essentially, it's the heart of Bitcoin. There is no physical Bitcoin. Your Bitcoin is stored as a part of this Bitcoin blockchain, which keeps tracks of all of the inputs, all the Bitcoin you've received and all of the outputs, all the Bitcoins you've sent. And actually, every time a transaction takes place, this mining network, the nodes I referred to earlier, the first thing they do is go through and check and make sure – I don't know if it's the first thing they do, but one of the important things they do is go through and check and make sure that, in fact, you have the amount of Bitcoin that you say you have when you're sending it. And they do that by going through every single Bitcoin transaction that you've made through your wallet address and making sure that you had enough Bitcoin come in and that you didn't send enough Bitcoin out to the point where you have the actual amount of Bitcoin that you're sending compared to what banks do. They just keep a running ledger with one particular number. This is a way that you can prevent double spending, which was a big problem that Bitcoin overcame. But again, outside of the currency, outside of the medium of exchange, the second level applications of Bitcoin is what really has me excited. And I've been tossing around this idea. We talked about freedom cells last time I was on your program, which essentially is a decentralized mutual aid society. It's the idea where you get together with 8 to 12 of your closest friends and family, people that you love and trust, and you commit yourselves to one another. You then try to find 8 to 12 groups of 8 to 12. Now you have one group of 80 to 120. You commit yourself to that group, not as committed as you are to your core inner cadre of 8 to 12. I call them 100 group, the middle cadre. Then you go and try to agitate for the creation of 8 to 12 groups of 80 to 120. Now you have around 1,000 people. This carries on all the way, you know, to as many. Hopefully, we can get the entire world in on a system like this, rather than a statist, coercive, top-down system. But one thing that I realized could be done with Bitcoin is the blockchain could be utilized in order to organize this system and in order to engage in what lefties call participatory democracy. So, say you have your group of a thousand people organized. Everyone's using a common token. There's different types of tokens that could be created on top of the Bitcoin network. And let's say that you guys want to decide to either join up with another group of a thousand or maybe we're all going to pitch in and buy this particular uh, piece of land or we're going to do some action that takes all of our, our, our energy together. You can vote essentially using these block, the blockchain by sending your tokens to a particular address. It could be totally publicly auditable and you could realize that, okay, we don't have 100% consensus, so we're not going to move forward. Or maybe 400 of the 1,000 people are interested in participating in a certain action. The other 600 who aren't interested don't have to participate. It also could work for awesome mutual aid applications or even replace the centralized Obamacare healthcare system altogether. So say you got your group of 100 people. My friend Stephen just recently broke his femur, 
and uh, he has insurance, thankfully, and they're taking care of that. But say we're trying to move past that paradigm, everyone could chip in 50 bucks, and that 50 bucks could be put in escrow until at least half of the people chip in. Now you have $2,500, uh, or maybe we want to have a consensus where everyone chips in. All that money could be held in an escrow account and then sent to his wallet for him to use for his health care. We can all start helping each other in this manner without having to rely on these centralized institutions. Uh, likewise, say, uh, you know, people are saying this is one of our goals is to buy a hundred acre piece of property and move on that property with our friends and family and build our own little mini free society. In essence, this could be done by people chipping in a certain amount of Bitcoin every month. And we don't make the purchase until we've all contributed our 10,000 or $25,000 share. That all goes into escrow with the common goal, we could even program into the, the technology not to send out the money until everyone's chipped in a certain amount and then we buy that piece of property together. So outside of just using Bitcoin as a currency, there's all sorts of implications to utilize this decentralized network in order to solve our common problems and help one another. And I think really when we tap into that type of potential with this Bitcoin blockchain, we can leave these governmental systems in the dust entirely. And I would rather see government be eradicated, but if government were to adopt this blockchain type system, the public would be able to audit everything they do. They wouldn't that's be able awesome. to do things outside of what uh, they're told. You know, like you can have a constitution that's transcribed in digital code form, and if government wants to spend money on A, B, or C, the code, the program will see, well, we haven't been empowered to do A, B, or C, so we can't send the money out. And then also, yeah, again, the public can check everything. Yeah, basically, keep you honest ledger. Like, right. the code would have to be altered, and therefore, whatever process was in place for altering the code or the Constitution would have to be satisfied for the code to be altered. So it would be just like, yeah, the computer says you're not allowed to do that, right? And and, and you could actually set that up where actually altering it would be noticeable. So it mm -hmm. would keep you can't just do it, but it wouldn't be hard to do. You would just have to satisfy the requirements, mm -hmm. So they, they, when they say, well, we might get into a situation where we didn't think about this, and everybody agrees that it should be done, but yet we can't do it. No, 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 no. You would just have to satisfy the requirements. Mm -hmm. um, and the voting component to Bitcoin, where we could actually use Bitcoin, like I'll send you a Saatchi and the system will send it back to me to record a vote, mm -hmm. and that makes it where one wallet, one vote uh, is is verifiable and identifiable if we want it to be that way. I think it allows us to use democracy for good because a lot of people that are in the anarcho world think, well, democracy is evil. Democracy is where I take my will and force it on you with a majority. Not necessarily. Democracy can be used in any voluntary society as long as I have the freedom to not participate if I don't like the outcome. As long as I can leave, it, it allows us to determine a solution. So if we have our group, let's say we move uh, – 100 families onto 100 acres, let's say. We're making a decision for the whole community. It's great that we vote, and I think most people, when a vote is fair, uh, look at that and go, okay, well, that, if that's what 80% of the people want, I'm not totally happy with it, but I can go along with this as long as I know my voice is heard. Or they can go, you know what, this isn't for me, I'm going somewhere else. Mm -hmm. and, and that freedom allows a democratic process to work. The other thing necessary is I have to believe the result. Whether I win or lose, for this to work, I have to have confidence in the result. I have to know I haven't been cheated, I haven't been frauded, that the people running the election haven't screwed me over because uh, that never happens or anything, right? Mm -hmm. With Bitcoin, we can audit it. We can audit it down to the point because we can make it very anonymous or very public where we could actually have somebody go out and ask John, John, did, 
did, did you actually vote this way? Yeah. And, well, you know, there's this, all this stuff about hidden ballots. I think in small communities, nobody's really unwilling to say what they want. The hidden ballot is a great way to create voter fraud, honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Of course, when the, the very people that are in the election, their insider crony network is the one that's running the machines. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, the the possibilities are endless, and that's why I like to use the term participatory participatory democracy. It's I think it's a left liberal, left anarchist type term. I've been trying to introduce it to libertarians, and I think it, it has a lot of appeal for people that are left liberals as well. Yeah, you don't have to participate unless you choose to participate in that particular function. And and something like the blockchain, it can it can make sure that we're honest in that, and we could say, well, you know, I'm not putting my money to this particular program. Like I think a great middle place for our the creation of a free society is to live in an environment where anarchists and statists can exist in cohesion, whereby the anarchists aren't forced to participate in the institutions that they don't use. Like maybe we can give a little little middle ground and say, okay, we're going to pay the gas tax because we use the roads and they're already established Correct. like that. We're not going to be able to build new roads until we build our flying DeLorean. Uh, you know, I used I used the park. I go play frisbee golf with my brother and my family and I. We walk down to the park. Actually, the park here in San Marcos was built entirely on donated money, and in fact, the entire community came together and built it back in the 70s, which is pretty cool. But you know, say you use the municipal parks, chip in your fee, but you have your own firearm. You don't ever call the police. You take care of that yourself. You've built your own distributed decentralized defense network in your neighborhood. You don't have to pay for that. You don't have to pay for that. So yeah. I think it's a good middle ground, and I could see the blockchain. You know, legitimately being used for that purpose. Another cool thing the blockchain can do to replace government is it can replace co- county clerks and magistrates and probates altogether. <laughs> so, for example, we had our children. We didn't get them Social Security numbers. Uh, the midwife was required to file a birth certificate because she was a licensed midwife. However, we didn't sign it, and in our eyes, it's you know, it's it's nonsense. But one thing that we could do, and we're going to go back and do this. We're definitely going to do it the day of with our with our third child is you can record the birth of your child into the blockchain with a timestamp to show that your child was born on this given day in this particular area. Uh, likewise, when you get married, we didn't we got married and we don't have a license, we can record our marriage into uh, the blockchain. Things that are simpler, the transfer of property, the, the blockchain and the Bitcoin network is a wonderful tool to, essentially, that's all it is. It's a it's a legitimate means of transferring property that doesn't rely on a centralized institution. So every time you send those Bitcoin, of course, you're literally transferring that value, that property. But there's this thing called, coming out called BitShares, and there's all these programs like the Master Protocol and NXT Coin. These are the Bitcoin 2.0 applications that people can utilize. But essentially, it's a it's a property thing. So say we have that hundred acres, somebody buys ten of the acres. We go ahead and send them 10 of these Satoshis or whatever token we're utilizing. They hold on to them. They keep their private key secured, and they can use that as a certificate of title. Now we don't have to rely on the county clerk. We don't have to rely on the the Texas Department of Transportation to show that we have property in our our vehicle, our automobile, for example. Uh, So, yeah, the possibilities are endless, and there's so many applications that could genuinely replace the state. We don't have to rely on the bureaucrats to do it. We don't even have to fund it through taxation. We can just use this blockchain as a court of record, essentially, to have things publicly viewable and have an audit trail. Well, I've always said that what Bitcoin really is in its essence is a system of accounting. Mm -hmm. That's really what it comes down to. I send you Bitcoin. Uh, I have to have had Bitcoin to send you Bitcoin. 
Uh, now you've received the Bitcoin. You now have the Bitcoin. The blockchain says Jack's Bitcoins are now John's Bitcoins. And Jack needs to go get other Bitcoins if he wants to do anything. And John can use them to do whatever he wants. And because it's so accurate, it's so valid, that is a big part of the value right there in of itself. All of the things you're talking about are just accounting of other items. Like when we hear the word accounting, because we've been programmed by the state, we see a dollar sign. You must be accounting for dollars or financial value. But the reality is all possessions, all things, all private properties, all collective properties, all things can be accounted for. Mm -hmm. And and what the Bitcoin blockchain does and other similar technologies do is create a means of accounting. So there's actually no reason that we couldn't use the blockchain to do something like this. Let's say I have a car. And you're like, Jack, I like that car. That's an awesome classic car. And I'm like, cool. And you're like, well, I don't have any money. I don't even have any Bitcoins. But I've got this piece of land that I think is worth about what your car's worth. And I could go, you know what? I'll take that piece of land for that car. There's no reason we couldn't have a, a blockchain protocol for me to actually give you my land in return for your car. Mm -hmm. Or you give me your land for my car. There's no reason that couldn't be done. Yeah, we just need to uh, to grow a community of people that will respect that as the authority when it comes to indicating Correct. who owns property. But I think that you know that network already exists. There's so many believers and there's so many people in the liberty community that we just have to come together and agree that this is what we're going to do. And then when people stray from that, we can use ostracism and we could put it out there that they're no longer adopting the business practices that our community holds to be true. And they could deal with the consequences of that. But we're not very far off from this happening. We just need people to do it. And before long, it'll be the norm. At least it'll be the norm for our community. And that's fine if everyone else wants to use this hocus-pocus magic money that's easily manipulatable. And they want to rely on central planning in order to dictate where the money's spent and, and how what the interest rates are. And they want some bureaucrat to keep the record. We don't, we don't need that anymore. That's what makes me so optimistic about the, the genuine creation of a free society Hopefully it's in my lifetime. Maybe when I'm getting gray and, and old and 90 or 100 sitting on the front porch, I'll can sit back and take a deep breath and say, wow, you know, this is what freedom's like. If not my children's lifetime, but the technology is really just creating an environment where the state is going to be irrelevant before long. And even though they have technology and they have these microwave weapons and unmanned aerial drones, I feel confident that the people and the will of the people to, to live free will overcome that every time. Like in Turkey, for example, they just tried to shut down Twitter, and you got people all over town spray-painting a DNS uh, address that people can log in through their Internet and use Twitter. You know, like, you can't overcome yeah, that, people that like that. Yeah, that ship has sailed, dude. When I hear people say, well, one day, Jack, they can shut the whole Internet down, great. If you want 5 million college students to tear the clowns out of their seats <laughs> at the Capitol building, go ahead. No, seriously, shut it down. Go ahead and see what happens. Yeah. And, and they're not stupid, dude. They know that. Yeah. They, they, they're the people that, in, in by and large, did create the modern Internet, enabled it, empowered it. And I believe the government thought this would be the greatest propaganda tool on Earth. Mm -hmm. But yet they couldn't take it forward. So they, they did it in a way where the free market could develop it further. They've done everything they can to make it their tool. And there's just too many people with too much power and too much knowledge and too much exchange now. And it's like they let that genie out of the bottle. Yep. The genie's not going back in. It, it, you can't put him back in. He's out, and he's unleashing a can of whoop-ass on the establishment. <laughs> That's what I see Bitcoin as being. You, you can't do that. There's no way to undo this now. Yep. Because the, the, one of the conspiracy theories is, you know what? 
It's the government, man. The government created Bitcoin, and and they're just using it to establish like a global currency. I don't buy that. But even if they did, there's, that was another dumbass move. <laughs> I, I, it, it's like, okay, so you created this on an open protocol network, an open systems network, where we can create duck coins and uh, Xavier Hawk is working on something called permacredits. It uses the Bitcoin yeah. protocol where you can take a Bitcoin and exchange it for a permacredit and use it basically like a share in a company that invests in good things and develops things uh, and have voting rights through it and return of surplus through it. Yes. And there's just like that's just one perme- – there's millions of permeations coming off of this now. And it's like even if you did do this, I, first of all, I don't think they're bright enough. I don't think they're creative enough. I don't think they have an understanding of their own system enough to develop something like this. But even if they did, it's like the Internet. Too bad for you. You should have done it this way. You're screwed. Yeah. Yeah, they blew it. Yeah, there's a lot out there. The NSA was putting out some reports uh, exploring cryptography as a a means of uh, money and value exchange. But, yeah, I I have the exact same opinion. If if you put it out there thinking you could do something with it, it was a big, huge mistake. Because of the open source nature, it can be utilized – by anyone. It's just like a gun. A gun is a piece of technology that can be used for self-defense. It could be used as a, a deterrent from for tyranny, but it could also be used to harm people and 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 rape people and coerce people. And it's it's used by government in large part to perform genocide and do some really nasty things. The worst thing is to get people to give up their own freedom and to voluntarily opt into all these programs just because of the presence of the gun, the gun in the room, the idea of it. But nonetheless, it's just a tool. It's an inanimate object that could be used for good or bad. The same thing with Bitcoin, same thing with the Internet. I would say the same thing with government, but I think it's inherently evil in that in order to participate, it's, it's coercive. Maybe a voluntary institution, of course, would be different from that. But yeah, I, I hold the same opinion. Even if the government did create it, the cat's out of the bag, and there's nothing they could do to control it at this point. And in my opinion, uh, based on my observations... Uh, most people that are using it right now are anarchists and and cypherpunks and liberty people and people that want to opt out of the Federal Reserve note. Now, there is a whole mess of uh, legacy money and Wall Street money and venture capital out of California, Wall Street money out of New York City that's starting to flood its way into Bitcoin. And there's a whole slew, there's a large contingent of people in the Bitcoin ecosystem that are actually calling on government to regulate Bitcoin because in large part they believe it will stabilize the currency like we saw with FRN uh, or they believe it will bring legitimacy. In my opinion, it's probably just their own self-interest thinking it's going to increase the value of Bitcoin in large part. But there is a contingent of Bitcoiners that are hopping in bed with the government and I don't like the way that that's going. But nonetheless, even if Bitcoin becomes regulated, highly regulated, even if they come out with what they're calling the bit license, where you have to have one of these licenses in order to engage in Bitcoin transactions or accept Bitcoin, Ugh. it's going to be easier than any other type of exchange that's ever existed to circumvent and subvert the state and to say, okay, you guys want to regulate it. You got these, you know, the implications for income tax here, and you, you're going to make me do A, B, or C, or I got to get this massive money transmitter license that costs six figures plus. To hell with you. I'm just going to encrypt my wallet even more so than I had it before, and I'm not going to tell you what I'm doing. So even though yeah. that, that does exist, the threat that the government could come in and, and just you know rain on our parade, this currency compared to any other currency will make it easier for agorists and anarchists to circumvent the state entirely, and that, that well, I remain hopeful. Gonna, 
if they really screw with it, we're just going to develop a new new like Bitcoin 8.0, <laughs> yeah. right? It's like it, it doesn't even like their regulations don't even apply to it because it uses technology they never thought of, yeah. and then everybody's going to transfer their money over there and go now. You guys play with that shit that you ruined. That's right. I mean, it's it's it would be very stupid for them to overregulate something like cryptocurrency in general at this point because I actually believe that. As it gains broader mainstream acceptance, if they just said, you know what, as far as we're concerned, Bitcoin's money, uh, just like if you receive silver, you're supposed to pay tax on the, the fair market value of the day of receipt. Uh, do that with Bitcoin, and otherwise we don't give a shit. Yeah, that'd be nice. A, a lot of people would circumvent the system, but a lot of people would just say, here's your money, go away. Mm -hmm. And that would actually be a big stabilizer, and that might be why a lot of the money's coming in. Because if they did that, let's face it, the day that headline runs... Bitcoin prices would go through the roof. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's already trending towards going through the roof, and that would just help it immensely. Uh, there's a wonderful example I like to share about how Bitcoin, you, it's just, it's to overcome states' control altogether. And again, I remain so optimistic because of examples like this. But there's this whole uh, application for Bitcoin called a DAC, a Distributed Autonomous Company, or a DAO, Distributed Autonomous Organization. And there's actually businesses that are being created on the – the actual business exists on the Bitcoin blockchain. It's not a corporation. There's no legal status in the eyes of the state. There aren't corporate shareholders. There's not CEOs. There's organizers, of course, and people that take charge. But essentially, the business exists within the blockchain and, or the service. And one example of this I like to point out, I was at the Texas Bitcoin conference. It was on March 5th and 6th. Awesome event. Wonderful organizers. Great networking opportunity. Cool speeches. They had a hackathon where they invited a bunch of techno geeks and they had all their suites and, and they just stayed up all night. They formed these groups uh, that they, a lot of people they didn't even know. They just organized themselves and formed groups and there was mentors there. And I went and interviewed them. There's a great podcast I did. You could check it out at the website uh, and listen to it. I interviewed probably about 10 people that were participating. And one of the groups, it was a team from Israel, actually. They won a hackathon in Israel. They came down to the States. That was the prize to participate in this hackathon. They got like fourth or fifth place overall here at the Texas Bitcoin Conference. Their project was to create a decentralized peer-to-peer -peer rideshare program that utilizes the Bitcoin blockchain and GPS technology. And as soon as I heard him say that, it just felt really good because about a year ago in Austin, there was a centralized company, a corporation, that was a startup, and they were building an, a phone app that allowed you to do pretty much the same thing. It was a, a rideshare program. You say, I want to go from A, a to B. They go check out the GPS. Here's someone else that wants to go from A to somewhere that's close to B. You guys link up. Well, the city shut it down. They wouldn't let it move forward. It's because the city's controlled by the taxi cartel. We've seen it happen. There's cartels for every industry. The taxi cartel. They uh, previously threw a lot of uh, wrenches in the gears of a friend's company that was starting this uh, solar-powered uh, uh, golf cart thing where they drove people around downtown. The taxi cartel went so far as to contribute like $30,000 to the establishment candidates. And then on one day, they drove all their taxis circling around City Hall, honking their horns to send a message not to let this project go forward. So they have a lot of control. They shut down that decentralized, uh, that centralized rideshare program. And as soon as I heard about this Bitcoin application to have, do the same thing, but there's no way you can possibly shut it down. You can't shut it down. Once you put it out there, it's out there. There's no head to cut off. There's no one to tax. There's no one to fine or coerce. There's no one to put in jail or take away their business, their property, their license if they don't comply with your edicts. 
And there's just going to be a whole slew of applications that come out like this. They're called distributed autonomous companies, and you could start one for just about any service. So we're going to start seeing in parallel to the, the status quo of a corporation with the CEO and a board of directors, there's going to be distributed autonomous companies come up, and the government's not going to be able to do a damn thing if they don't like what they're doing. And for me, that's really exciting. Isn't that what you think they're really scared of? The, the two things is the, the you just take them out of the equation in so many ways, where they're like, well, you can't do that, but we don't know how to stop that. We can't do that, but we don't know how to stop. We're going to say that's illegal, but we don't know how to figure out who's doing it. Uh, and they're just like deer in the headlights with that. And then the other thing is, we talked about this last time you were on, if I set up a paper wallet, memorize my mnemonic key, get on a flight in New York City, land in Tokyo, I have my money in my head, no amount of anything in the world will ever take that away from me. Mm -hmm. And I can move that money anywhere I want to, whenever I want to, and you don't need to worry about it. That those two things have got to be, and then I guess the third big one would be the multi-billion-dollar market in merchant fees that's under direct assault. Those mm -hmm. three things have to have the establishment just going, "Holy shit, what do we do?" Yeah, yeah, and money transmission as well. Uh, yeah, you you made a good point. Uh, there's a service you don't have to memorize your private key. You can memorize the twelve-word mnemonic seed, or there's even a service that allows you to put in a phrase. And all you got to do is remember that phrase. Just make it original, like, I was talking to Jack Spierko today, and I had a really good time on his show. I memorized that phrase. I don't tell anyone. You put it in this, this program, then, as you said, you could travel to Japan anywhere. All you got to do is pop in that phrase. It'll be a lot easier to memorize. But, yeah, there's the, the problem is there's these money transmitters like Western Union, and there's all sorts of them all across the world. And there's these people that come into another you know, a developed country to work, whether they're here legally or not. I don't care. But they come to work, they send their money back home, and the problem is the fee is exponentially higher for third world countries. The poorer the country, the higher the fee. That's exploitative in my opinion. Bitcoin Extremely. has the opportunity to completely circumvent that, and you could send money anywhere in the world back to your family at home, and it doesn't cost a damn thing. This is something that happened in well, a – John, that means terrorists can send money to other <laughs> terrorists. Yeah. Yeah, like HSBC is uh, m laundering money for the Mexican drug cartels and the U.S. government's helping to finance the Syrian opposition army, yeah, for sure. You can do that with U.S. dollar, too. That's the biggest hogwash. All their critiques have so many holes in them if you just talk about it. But like you said at the beginning of our conversation, the media has came out, and they have had a field day just trying to tarnish Bitcoin's reputation to the point where people – I talk to Bitcoin – I talk to people about Bitcoin. They say, well, didn't Bitcoin go bankrupt? You know, like Bitcoin can't go bankrupt. There is no yeah. institution to go bankrupt. Yeah. That shows like technological ignorance. Like back when the Internet was kind of coming up and, you know, my dad looked at AOL and thought AOL was the Internet. He was pretty, pretty smart guy with stocks. Right. And reading the future with stocks because he spent his whole life in stocks and options as far as his investment side of things went. And he kept saying the Internet's going to go broke. The Internet's going to go broke. The Internet's going to go broke. <laughs> but what he meant is this this train ride that AOL's on is going to end in a train wreck and there'll be an obscure little piece of junk down the road. But to him, that meant, well, the Internet was going to go broke. Mm -hmm. The Internet can't go broke. It's a network. Mm -hmm. And that, because Mt. Gox is gone and was stupid with their clients' money. And uh, you correct me if I'm wrong, but as I understand it, for like a year, the whole Bitcoin community was telling anybody holding money at Mt. Gox, get out. These people are on the way to bankruptcy. And people just stayed there. 
Um, but when they when you see that, you think, well, that means Bitcoin's gone. And I had one of my YouTube videos about Bitcoin. A guy said, well, game over now. Bitcoin's now something like 38 bucks or something like that. And I'm like, where do you get your information from? <laughs> Fox News. Yeah, exactly, right? It's Fox News. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Mt. Gox debacle this time around demonstrated that Bitcoin was able to persevere more than the first Mt. Gox debacle. Last year, Mt. Gox had another big crash and, and some technical problems. And Bitcoin crashed about 50%. It was, a, it was a significant drop. This time, Mt. Gox had even bigger of a problem. They declared bankruptcy, and they, they complete, the, the price of Bitcoin on Mt. Gox went all the way down to like 200 bucks or less. But on the other exchanges and the global average, it stayed around 600 bucks, 500. I think it dipped down below 500 once. But nonetheless, the difference in price because of some Mt. Gox problems uh, was much smaller this time around. Last year, Mt. Gox was the largest Bitcoin exchange, and at the time of their problems, uh, they were like the third or fourth largest, somewhere around there. there. The point is that the Bitcoin ecosystem is growing exponentially to the point where a Mt. Gox problem happens and it doesn't uh, hinder Bitcoin's value or it doesn't hinder anything. You know, like, yeah, all this stuff was going on with Mt. Gox. The business down the road still accepting Bitcoin just the same. I'm still paying people that I work with for the Liberty Beat, just the same with Bitcoin. All that stuff is irrelevant. And then again, the price is going to fluctuate, especially now in its infancy. But that is still irrelevant. If you exchange Bitcoin, uh, you send it uh, for for a value transfer, and somebody cashes it out on their end. I will caution people: if if you have a lot of overhead, it's not the best idea to hold all of your Bitcoin. I try to be a true evangelizer, and I have people that I pay. There's four people that I work with. We do a daily news service. It's called the Liberty Beat. You could check it out at thelibertybeat.com. And it's uh, radio news like Fox News or NPR, except it's got a little bit of a liberty bent to it, liberty propaganda. And I said, you know, I'm going to hold the Bitcoin. I want to be a true Bitcoin believer. And, of course, Bitcoin, even when Bitcoin's value fluctuates 10 to 20 percent, ideally it fluctuates upward, but sometimes it fluctuates downward. It really put a, a, a hurt on my business. So I would recommend people, if you don't have a lot of overhead, if it's just a, a, a solo operation, hold on to it because I think it's going to go to the moon. But if you do have overhead, one thing you could do through programs like BitPay or Coinbase allows you to do this as well. You can set it. Actually, I'm not sure Coinbase does. BitPay definitely does. You can set it to have 90% of the Bitcoin you receive transfer over to FRNs and deposit in your bank account. So you can hold that as overhead. Uh, FRNs right now are more stable than Bitcoin, but that, that probably won't be the case in the coming years. And then you could have 10% or whatever amount is best for you. Set that as a savings account, essentially. In your wallet, you can even do a deep cold storage, take it offline, put it in a paper wallet, throw it in your safe or a physical uh, armory wallet, for example. And uh, that's something that I recommend. People should be aware. If you have overhead, it may not be the best idea to hold a lot of your Bitcoin in Bitcoin because the price fluctuates. If it goes down 25%, that could really put a hurt on your business. But applications like BitPay allow you to have a percentage what you're comfortable with. Yeah, and I mean – with with, uh, with Coinbase, for instance, I'm not sure if it has the because I didn't want to do it, so I didn't even look into it. But I can sell Bitcoin at any time and have it deposited to my account. Yep, to my bank account. So if I wanted to do that, even if I wanted to do it manually on a weekly basis, I could transfer money over for stability purposes yes. or for cash flow av- availability. And it all depends on what percentage of your business you're taking in as Bitcoin. If you're taking in 10 percent of your business as Bitcoin and you have lower or, or little physical product overhead. 
it's easy to leave it there. Um, I sell an intangible product with Bitcoin, so mm-hmm. it's real easy for me to just go, I'm going to leave it there, and it, it might go up, it might go down, I don't care. Mm-hmm. I believe in the long-term thing, but if I was selling you uh, raspberry and blackberry cuttings, and I have a physical cost with shipping, and, and I need to pay my bills and all, well, I might need some of that to come out. So the fact that I can do that... Um, is awesome. Or if let's say I wanted to do this, I wanted to take 50% of my sale price and have cash. And I wanted to have 50% of my, or 25% stay in Bitcoin and 25% uh, in silver for diversification of holdings. Yeah. I could go Agamai metals and I could buy once a month, 25% of whatever came in in silver and they'll ship me silver. I mean, the flexibility that's there mm-hmm. should take away a lot of apprehension because I will not tell a person go buy Bitcoin so you can become a millionaire. My answer is it could happen. It could not. I don't know. Who knows what's going to happen? But I see it as no riskier than just about any other investment you would make. And if you're selling anything and you're not taking Bitcoin, I just think you're cutting your nose off to spite your face at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's a, yeah, it's a no-brainer. If, if you have the ability, especially if you have online sales, you've got to hook up with Bitcoin. It's super easy. Go to BitPay.com. Hit me up at SovereignBTC.com, and I'll help step you through it. But I do uh, believe one important thing for people that are holding Bitcoin as an investment strategy is to hold it as much as you can. Just get it, hold it for the long term. If this year is anything like last year, Bitcoin went up 56 times last year. It started at like 19 bucks or something and ended up at like $1,200. If it does anything like that this year, even if it goes up 10 times, you know, we're looking at $10,000 of Bitcoin or $7,000 of Bitcoin. So, there's a good balance, though, because with this new technology, it actually increases the value for you to use the Bitcoin. So I encourage people to hold as much as they can, but also to use it as a medium of exchange to shop on gift.com. Go frequent the guys that are out there taking that first leap of faith and accepting Bitcoin before everyone else does. You know, chances are, if you're listening in a major city, there's over a dozen or two dozen businesses that'll accept it. In Austin, there's restaurants, there's food carts. Uh, you can go to Brave New Books, of course, which is a Liberty uh, bookstore in operation since 2006. They were the first brick and mortar in the entire state of Texas to accept Bitcoin. So uh, there's a balance. And, of course, that's all up to the individual, what their goals are, what their preferences are. But I do believe, and again, it could go down to zero. So they always say don't put more into Bitcoin than you're willing to uh, lose entirely. But I genuinely believe that you hold Bitcoin this stuff's going to be worth tons and tons. As soon as the general public really catches on, as soon as Target hops on board or Amazon hops on board, it has the – I mean, even if mutual funds and IRAs start utilizing Bitcoin to hedge some of their other investments or if they just throw 1% of their, their big investment pool into Bitcoin, that's huge for the price oh, of Oh, it's massive. And boy, it would have worked out recently, wouldn't it? Yeah, for sure. Big time. Yeah. I think that that's the first kind of thing they'll regulate out. Right, that's something they can regulate out. They can say that you you can't use investor money and plant Bitcoin through any of their little apparatus they've created. I, I, maybe you should have said that. There's somebody right now at the SEC. Going, <laughs> we need to do that because um, that boy that would. And if they did it, you know what? If they did it before it was regulated out, it's too late. Like as soon as it happens, it's like. Anybody that benefits from this can be like, I don't want you to take that away. Yeah, yeah, there'll be a Bitcoin lobby. That's the big reason we need to get people using Bitcoin. Like I've always said, if you want to defend your right to keep and bear arms, keep and bear arms. Yeah, and take a non-gun person to the range and teach them to shoot and help them buy their first gun. 
Because then the second, and buy them the, the, the edge of what, you know, get them to buy the edge of what the law says they can have wherever they are. Right? So if, if the best you can do where you are is an AR with 30 round magazines, get that guy into an AR with 30 round magazines. So the first time any restriction impinges in his area, he feels it. Because the second a person actually has something that the government wants to take, it's personal. If, it's sad, but most people don't care if they take away something from somebody else. Yeah. People that are awake do, but why do you think they can take a cigarette tax and increase it by 400% in one year and nobody bitches except the smokers? Mm-hmm. Because I don't really want to smell your stinky cigarettes, right? So with that alone, I'm like, I don't care if you pay more. But the, the, the human being in me says, why is it okay to, to do that? Mm-hmm. But if you put a person in the possession of something that they want to take, also that person goes, wait, I was, I was like Connecticut right now. You're, these guys are feeling this. Yesterday I was legal. Today, unless I give away what I owned yesterday, I am a criminal. Yeah. That is cool. how you create a popular rebellion is you make people have a stake mm-hmm. in what they're attacking. Yeah. So with Bitcoin, the more people we get using it, the greater the resistance to any attempt to control, regulate, or get rid of it. For sure. Yeah, that's a great point. And uh, if you go to centraltexasgunworks.com, you can actually buy firearms with Bitcoin. It's the, it's the first. We call uh, it function stacking in permaculture. There you go. Yeah, there you go. Two birds with one stone. It's actually the first uh, gun store in the entire country right here in Austin, Texas. My good friend Michael Cargill operates it. And this guy, Michael Cargill, is one heck of a freedom advocate. And you get him in front of a camera with local media, he has a way with words. I remember in the first interview they did with him on the him accepting Bitcoin, he said, uh, you know, Bitcoin is a technology and government is behind right now. But we don't have time to, to sit around and wait for them to learn what it's all about. We're moving forward and we're accepting Bitcoin. I, that was pretty cool. So, yeah, people can buy guns online. He started accepting Bitcoin online, centraltexasgunworks.com. Get yourself a AR-15 or a Glock 19 and take it to the gun range. Buy your ammo with, with Bitcoin, too. Yeah. And that's yeah. a good store of value as well, uh, ammo is. Well, this was a fun program, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for tuning in. Again, the state is pressing down and just got to cover it. I I mean, in my heart of hearts, I'm a liberty guy, and I strongly believe that everyone should be able to live their own life according to their own ends as long as they don't interfere with other people's ability to do the same thing, other people's right to do the same thing. And there's this massive institution known as the state that I just see hindering human progress extremely, and it upsets me and pains me. And I do not want my two children to grow up in the same world that I did. I don't want them to be looking over their back when a cop's following behind them, worried about what could happen. I don't want them to see videos on television or on the Internet of of police or state agents brutally beating people and murdering people. I don't want them to, to have the feeling that their tax dollars, that their wealth, their value is being leached and stolen from them and used to fund foreign wars of aggression. I'm telling you, folks, if we can weaken the state's power, especially the central banks, which Bitcoin does immensely, if that's a way to dramatically reduce war. If you're anti-war, don't feed the state, support Bitcoin, replace the central banks, and they won't be able to create this money out of thin air to go murder and pillage and rape and engage in genocide. And if it's not the Western countries doing it directly, you could bet your bottom dollar they're funding foreign governments through IMF and through false flag terror attacks and through overthrowing these third world countries. It's terrible, and you got to think about it. You may think that I'm an extremist and that I ramble on 
and that we should be talking about economics and Bitcoin and everything's peachy peachy. Let's talk about the latest business accepting Bitcoin, yada, yada, yada. Yes, let's talk about that too. But let's also get down to the truth, folks. There's some nasty stuff going on in this world. You are forced to participate in it by funding it. That's terrible prospect. I would hope people could agree with this. I don't think there's very many people that are listening to this program, whether they agree with me or not, on the basis of liberty that appreciate paying the income tax. I mean, come on. If everybody appreciated paying it and enjoyed paying it, it wouldn't have to be coercive. You wouldn't be forced into paying it. Ah, it's upsetting. It's upsetting, and it's a little bit more upsetting to see Bitcoin blossom and Bitcoin... And I wasn't watching Bitcoin from the beginning, but I was around when Bitcoin was unregulated and before these governments started really cracking down, and now it's just depressing to see them get their grubby hands on it. But as I said before, I remain cautiously optimistic because Bitcoin, unlike other mediums of exchange... It's a lot easier for people to make that choice to not participate, to not comply. And I'm excited about the future prospects for liberty because of technology, because of the internet, because of 3D printing, because of Bitcoin, because of communities coming together that aren't dependent on geographic space but are dependent on an idea. And I want to associate with individuals who believe in freedom. And I want to do what I can to grow alternative forms of organization and organizing society that don't rely on coercion, hierarchy, and control. That's a little bit what the show is all about. So I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you think and consider, come April 15th when you're filing your taxes, think about what that money is doing. It's going to service the debt. And that debt, in large part, is funding multiple foreign wars of aggression which are taking fathers away from their children, which are creating widows, which are dropping depleted uranium over countries, causing children to have birth defects for generations to come. Don't allow yourselves to be disconnected. When you write that check, you're indirectly participating in that. And I know that you're forced to do so. That's why Bitcoin exists. That's why Bitcoin is here. Free the market. Free the world. Remember, use Bitcoin, live free, and prosper.